0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Goody Reader Radio Show. It is March 31st, 2014, and I'm joined today by Jeremy Greenfield of Digital Book World. Jeremy, what's the scoop? What's the haps?
1: It's sunny out. The sky is blue. It's beautiful, to paraphrase the Beatles, so I'm doing well.
0: Let's talk Nook. You you wrote a piece on Forbes, and I noticed over the weekend a lot of publications picked up on it um, you know a lot of the sites I generally read just to keep abreast of the latest news and everyone seemed to have either a differing of opinion than you did or they ripped your they ripped your premise apart um, what exactly was the Forbes article all about
1: yeah yeah I saw some negative pieces about this but I'd love to get together with you after the show and find out you know get read the others. I'd love to see some intelligent dialogue about it. You know, my, my, my basic thinking around this is that if you look at the Nook business over the past couple of years, it's really not doing very well. And, and if you're uh, you know, an investor or an analyst and you're just looking at the trajectory, it's, it's downward. It's very, very negative. And the company has been trying things here and there to revive it, but really it's kind of been tossed Uh, this way and that way by the changing business conditions by Amazon. It hasn't really dictated the rules of play at all. Um, Really, the last time I think we were celebrating Nook as being a forward-thinking, prescient company that is leading the charge is when the Nook with Glowlight came out. It was the first e-reader with a backlight, and it was very popular initially. And then three months later, all the other companies had their own backlight e-readers that were actually better at the time, uh, still are better, the, the Kindle, Paperwhite, and such. Um, so my thinking was, you know, what what the executives there have been trying hasn't been working if they want to grow the business and make a statement for the company. So, I was thinking, what are the what are the advantages that Barnes and Noble has? over its, com- its major competitor, which is Amazon. And the only main advantage is a very large network of bricks-and-mortar stores. And the company has tried to use that network to its advantage, putting in Nook digital zones in many of its stores, in, in all of its retail stores. But that strategy obviously hasn't worked. So my thinking was, why not try a different strategy that took advantage of the, di- the, print- the-, the physical distribution network that Nook has? So my idea was for Nook to, through... S- Barnes & Noble's book publishing division, Sterling, developed an imprint that was solely for the purpose of publishing print versions of self-published ebooks. And the idea would be that it would be like Kindle Direct Publishing Select, where someone would sign up for Nook Print, and it would mean that for a year they would have to exclusively sell their ebooks through Nook, but they would also get some level of print distribution through the Barnes & Noble network of stores. And there would be editors at Sterling who were, uh, who are, who are, you know, judging the content. And for very, very good self-published content, they would, um, you know, distribute it widely through Barnes & Noble's network of stores. And for, for very low-level self-published content, uh, you know, they would distribute it to the local Barnes & Noble store of the author, um, you know, as per the agreement. And I think a lot of authors would bite on this, and I think it would give Nook some uh, credibility in the author world, and I think it would also give Nook some original, unique content that you would have to buy only from Nook. Um, and you know that that's just one idea that, that I thought Nook could use to potentially, you know, have an advantage over its biggest competitor.
0: You know, I, I see another advantage too that no one really talked about, which is library distribution. Could you imagine if Barnes cause like all the time you hear about Smashwords hooking libraries up with ebooks or you hear about publishers doing business with overdrive or doing business with libraries directly, this would actually allow Barnes & Noble via Sterling to be able to distribute their self-published titles directly to libraries, boistering their catalog and actually enhancing the overall profile of the bookseller. Mm-hmm. So, well,
1: you know, that, that that's something that could work also. and I think there's lots of things Barnes & Noble could do, but this one just seemed to me, you know, something that it would be relatively easy for Barnes & Noble to do and would really play on its natural advantage over Amazon.
0: You know, um, Barnes & Noble and Amazon, you know, they don't have the best relationship. Um, I know with Amazon Publishing, Barnes & Noble has refused to stock in their bookstores any of the Amazon Publishing titles.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, obviously it's open war on that front. Uh, Amazon versus Barnes and Noble. It's one of the few battlefronts where really the war is open. Uh, whereas in publishing, people are constantly competing with each other, but you know, openly they're very friendly to each other. Um, and you know, so I think Barnes and Noble should really do anything it can to to get an advantage. I mean, Jeff Bezos, in his his in the book about him, the recent book about him um, by Brad Stone. Uh, the everything store you know talks about how he believes that amazon in the uh, in the retail world wouldn't have any big advantage over any competitors I mean after all he 's right you know the barriers to entry for internet businesses are still very low um, so that what it would have to do is string together a bunch of small advantages that it could use to build uh, you know a, a way to compete with with stores like Barnes and Noble and with stores like Walmart. Um, I think Barnes & Noble needs to look at its situation very similarly, you know, what are its advantages that it can use to compete with Amazon and I think print distribution is really, or or physical store distribution I should say, is really the only thing that Barnes & Noble has that's a big advantage over Amazon now.
0: I have a story that sort of ties into this and uh, I, I know a lot of sites have written about it, it's about Verso. Yes now they are doing something interesting and 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 they're basically doing something i've been advocating for like years which is uh bundling digital books with the purchase of a print book so uh, they have a lot of publisher support i think penguin is behind them uh random house and, and a number of other companies and they're basically sending out books that you order and they'll pay for the shipping so, and they'll also give you the digital book for free and they're saying that it's a social DRM watermarking technology so these books do not have to be loaded on your device with Adobe digital editions basically you don't have to jump through a lot of hoops to copy it to your phone copy it to your tablet uh, maybe send it to a family member hey I just bought this great book you know you live across the country from me let me just email you the book and you know you you could read it and this prevents you know piracy and things like that because if i were to buy a book it the the watermark would be tied into me so if i were to put it on file sharing sites it'd be pretty easy for people to track it down uh, directly to me now you know they are this company isn't the only company to do something like this do you think that verso will take off
1: uh, you know, the company expects to make something like 200 pounds from, uh, from 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 the, these new business initiatives in the first year, and, and I think that's very ambitious and, and maybe wishful thinking. And I you think
0: mean 200,000?
1: 200, 200,000, yes. I'm sorry. 200,000 uh, pounds sterling. So, you know, somewhere under $400,000 in the first year, and that is a very significant uh, ramp-up, and it would be very impressive if it could do so. You know, here's the thing that publishers uh, need to learn about e-commerce that thing is everything uh, e-commerce is very complicated it's it's about you know moving consumers down a purchase funnel until they purchase and there are many 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 possible steps where, where consumers can get snagged um, and many reasons for them not to buy from you and to buy from someone else. Now, Verso is obviously you know, launching this business in 2014. Um, you know, I'm sure they've thought about many, many of these issues, but there are going to be problems arise that they're not going to be able to anticipate. Um, and, and, and the bundling is, you know, it is a compelling reason to have a, a direct relationship um, with Verso, and I can tell you that bundling products is something that FNW Media, my own employer, has become very successful at doing, and, and has been successful at doing it as a differentiator uh, to the, the competition. So I think that it's going to be, you know, a tough road for any publisher to try to do what Verso is doing. But I think that if done smartly, it can really pay off. Now, two hundred thousand pounds sterling in the first year. Um, I I wish them luck, and I hope that they're successful.
0: Yeah, I mean, it it comes down to marketing and and awareness, you know. Will the average person know or have heard of Verso before and order books by them? Perhaps, perhaps not, you know. um, It it comes down to a marketing campaign, and I just don't know if they have the resources to be able to really, like, blitz the world, you know, and, and... I, I don't know if they're really sort of trying to spearhead in the UK market and and you know become as big there as possible or whether they're just trying to you know launch a global campaign it's it's, it's really sort of hard to know I mean um, there's a lot of unknowns you know do they have worldwide distribution rights for ebooks you know that that's a, a Contentious topic all uh, to itself. And, you know, places like London Book Fair are rights festivals first and foremost. So a lot of uh, books that maybe have been published in the States, their rights will be auctioned off at the London Book Fair for um, European distribution rights, for UK distribution rights, and so on. Now, you're going to actually be there live next week.
1: Yes, I am um, going to be there live next week. You know, I think that. The thing that's going to trip them up, if anything trips them up, isn't the marketing thing or the rights thing, because I think those are things that publishers know about and they know how to do. Um, You know, publishing companies are basically, you know, venture capital firms with marketing arms. So I think they understand those two things. What I don't think they really understand is, well, what they don't understand yet necessarily is how do you once you've gotten someone someone's attention you've gotten to you've brought them to the page where you're giving them information about your product how do you get them to go down that fu- that that that, that purchase step by step by step and not get hung up in any of the steps so they have to first decide that they want to buy something then they've got to take action on buying the thing and then they've got to give you their you know credit card information other information and then they've got to you know go through the purchase and confirm the purchase and um, you know there are all these little areas where people can get uh, can get snagged and and not actually complete a purchase. So I think that's where the biggest learning curve is going to be. You know, they may find that they're able to drive a lot of traffic to their website, but their conversion numbers are very low, and then they need to sort of have an online product expert go and look at their stats and see where people are getting hung up and, you know, fix problems one by one. So, you know, I do think there will be a learning curve. And and also, you know, e-commerce is always changing. You know, the rules of e-commerce are changing and and best practices are always changing. So they'll have to keep up on those things as well. It's really a whole different kind of business, but it's probably worth it for a company that can do it successfully. So I
0: mentioned Lennon Book Fair and uh, have you been there before? I have not. Okay. So, um, it's crazy. Um, I went there once like about three years ago and I've just been sending one of our staff writers there because they're based on the East Coast. Um, you being in New York, it's, it's a way shorter of a flight to London than it is from Vancouver to uh, London, which is, you know, basically six and a half hours just to get to New York. And then, you know, another four or five hour flight to London. So um, I tend not to go to that event just because it's just so far away. Um, how stoked are you?
1: I'm really excited. Um, Over the past three weeks, I've been spending a lot of time um, making meetings with people, so I'm just going to pull up my calendar real quick. And um, it is just jam-packed. Monday the 7th is the Digital Minds Conference, so I'll be covering that. And then pretty much... Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday on, I'm almost in back-to-back-to-back meetings with people, um, breakfast, lunches, and I'm meeting some people that I know already from the U.S., but I'm also meeting significant digital players in the U.K. and Europe, uh, at big five publishers, at smaller publishing houses, um, at vendors, uh, you know, folks that I think will be very familiar to, listen to listeners of this uh, webcast, but also people that they may not know. Like, for instance, I'm having lunch with um, the head of digital at a very large publisher uh, in Italy on Thursday um, so I, I I intend to learn a lot uh, over the next week and meet a lot of interesting people and of course you know London's a great town and I'll be staying the following weekend and um, you know lucky for our, both of our audiences I will not be reporting on what happens during my weekend in London
0: ah, well it's uh, it, the the European and, and UK publishing scene it tends to be actually a lot different from what a lot of people are used to in in North America and it's just because of the the language you know barriers in Europe you know despite the close proximity of all these countries to each other different cultures different languages different ways that they go about marketing to each you know audience and it's 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 very different and i i found that when you really pay attention to the UK and and Western European publishing Scene, you really get like a, a good global perspective on the way that um, if a book is published in the States, what does it take for, for you know, European and, and global rights to be initiated? What's the process of, you know, of of auctions where publishing companies bid on specific books? It's actually pretty interesting to, you know, pay attention to that whole scene. Um one thing that I, uh, I wrote about uh, over the week was uh, e reader owners tend to read more. And there was a study done by Quick Reads, which is actually a United Kingdom based nonprofit. And they said, uh, according to their report, uh, 48% of UK adults who use e readers say the technology allows them to read more. Uh, 41% reported that they like to be able to look up words that they didn't know to make reading easier and over 50% were enamored with the fact that they could change font types and font sizes and and it was that last statistic that really uh, resonated with me because you look at uh, elderly people um, you know anybody really over like 60 Um, eyes aren't as good as they used to be a lot of them have glasses and The one thing that e-readers and, and, you know, tablets, what they provide for you is be able to change the size of the font. Because if you go to your local bookstore, all of them sort of have like a... Uh, a large text section where you could buy books where the you know the the text in the book is double or triple the size than a normal book and that's meant to uh, appeal to a wide array of readers that don't have good eyesight or for you know reading disabilities and so on but those books are ridiculously overpriced they're like three or four times the amount uh, that a normal book would cost and a lot of the times they're in covers, so you're sort of paying that hardcover premium on top of it whereas an ebook still uh, still cheaper than buying like a paperback book for the most part and you could actually increase the the font so every ebook you buy has large text by default which would you know appeal to more uh, elderly readers so what do you think about this report
1: well you know to me it's obvious uh, we know that the early adopters of e-reading through e-book readers, dedicated e-book readers like the Kindle and the Nook, um, are, are the power readers. And so we know that the people who e read, you know, by default, basically read more. And I think logically, it follows that, you know, people who are highly interested in reading, um, you know, are people who uh, invested in these things early on, were interested to try them out and sort of gain the benefits of, you know, being able to read more for a little bit less money and sort of having the convenience of your books around you all the time. Um, And then secondarily, you know, I think that I I know that I read more with my e-reader because I have my books around me all the time and I can just, you know, open up my phone and uh, read for a few minutes while I'm waiting for the train, and um, I, I definitely get a lot more reading done. So I think it all follows logically, and it's stuff that we've seen before in Pew studies, uh, but, but it's good to always reconfirm the things that we think we know.
0: So what is Oyster and the Explorers Club Party?
1: Oh, well, you missed it, Michael. Uh, it was the off-season publishing event of the year. Uh, uh, basic, Yeah, you missed it. I'm sometimes sorry. Sometimes it so, sucks
0: being on the West Coast.
1: I, you know, I, I don't understand why anyone lives outside of New York, but, you know, yeah. I'm sure there are the good reasons. Um, so anyways, I uh, was uh, at a, a cocktail party last week to celebrate Oyster. Um, which is the new uh, subscription ebook service, and it was to celebrate six months of oyster exploring at the Explorers Club in New York, and it's a really interesting place where people who are explorers are members of the club. So if you uh, have done some deep-sea exploration or mountain climbing or spent a year living with the tribes in New Guinea or something, um, then you can you publish something about it then you could join and it's a very inexpensive club to join it's a beautiful clubhouse full of uh really interesting artifacts from from explorations all around the world and you know of course they have you know the walrus heads and stuffed penguins and things that you know I don't think we would want to see new versions of but these were things that were collected and and made in the early 20th century or in the 19th century so it's a little bit more acceptable but it was a really interesting party a lot of interesting digital book publishing folks were there in a really interesting space and i think you know oyster is trying to make a statement uh with things like this that it is a fixture that is here to stay and not just a flash in the pan Uh, but as you know with all startups uh, we will see
0: see yeah that's the thing i mean uh Oyster has some hefty competition, and it's it's mainly through Scribd. And, you know, Scribd has... I think Scribd has the advantage that it's been around for a lot longer in a different form. And um, I think they they have, like, a lot more notoriety just because um, Scribd has been dissected, you know, over, like, the last four or five years just due to file sharing due to pirated books and things like that so it had like a big audience before it launched its ebook subscription service whereas oyster kind of came out of nowhere to um, launch their service and um, i think it's challenging for a company like that that didn't really have an existing audience to build up some traction Um, one thing i wanted to talk about is uh, ebook reviews and if you are an online shopper with Kobo or with Amazon or with Barnes and Noble, um, all whether you're shopping in an app or on their website, you could get an indication on what other people think of the book by reading uh, an online review and. There is a new service uh, that DBW wrote about that is actually aimed at an entirely demographic, uh, which is kids. And this is an often, um, people don't really pay attention to kids at all, but apparently there's a new company that is aiming at book reviews just written by kids.
1: So Biblionasium is the name of the startup, and it likes to call itself Goodreads for kids. But it's also kind of like a, a, a tool that librarians and teachers and other educators can use to engage kids with reading. So Biblionasium has about 100,000 kids using it now. Um, and about somewhere under 20,000 teachers and and librarians and and people who work with kids. Um, And basically, it's like Goodreads for Kids. You know, it's a social network that kids can use to read books, see what their friends are reading, discover new books. Um, And one of the things that it just added, which it didn't have before, was reviews. So the problem with this whole idea of social network for kids, that there are these laws um, in the U.S. and I think around the world, that prevent you from building, say, a social network for kids where it's just a free for all, because adults could gain access to it and kids could unknowingly give away, say, their contact information or other private information, and then you know that would make parents and kids very, very uncomfortable that they were unsafe and their privacy wasn't being protected. So uh, they're, they're called the COPA laws. Um, And this site, Ilionesium, has gone to great lengths to be what they call COPA compliant, that they are compliant with these privacy laws. Now, you couldn't previously allow kids to write reviews of books because they might put in personal information that someone could use to identify them. Uh, So they would allow kids to sort of choose from a drop-down menu. You know, did you like this book? How much did you like it? Would you recommend it to a friend? That sort of thing. So they could kind of give their opinion, but not in their own voice. But what happened was Biblionasium kept on getting emails from librarians and parents and teachers saying, why? Let, a, let our kids write reviews. We want them to write reviews in their own voice. And uh, so they found a way to do it, where basically the librarians and the teachers have complete control over the reviews and the environment in which the reviews live, um, and they're not just publicly accessible. So kids now can write reviews on the site, and I, you know I think that it could be a very powerful, eventually, website for publishers to sort of understand you know how kids think and what they want, and you know the the kids. Portion of trade publishing is not huge. I mean, through young adults and things like The Hunger Games, it's gotten a lot bigger. Um, but really, the main game is the adult, the adult fiction. Um, but but you know, tomorrow's adult fiction readers are today's children's uh, book readers. So I think publishers and publishers understand this. And so, Biblionasium, should it grow to a large. Uh, To become a large platform, um, will probably be a very significant source of information uh, for publishers, um, both children's and adult publishers.
0: So, how do you market a review system to kids? I mean, kids are sort uh, of—they have the sites that they visit, and uh, they have—you know—it's hard to market towards kids, especially like leaving leaving a book review. What do you think it's going to take to be able to engage kids properly?
1: So, you know, I don't think that, that there is marketing toward the kids. I think that it's um, – it, it, it's right now it's a system for kids to learn, and that's actually one of the problems is that you can't really market the kids online. There are a lot of rules around it. So I think probably the ways in which – the site will will be a marketing arm for publishers is, is maybe they will do book giveaways through teachers where they'll offer a teacher can use a certain book um, you know as a, as a giveaway that sort of thing uh, they won't be able to market directly to kids and I think the reviews will happen when the teachers and librarians want them to so it'll be like homework assignment
0: yeah I, I could I could see that I mean it's kind of like a, a win win you know for uh, you know for kids to be able to engage with uh, the publishers um. Did you ever hear about a company called Readmill based in Germany?
1: Yes, of course. It it just got sold this week.
0: Yeah, they just got uh, bought out by Dropbox.
1: Yeah, that was uh, really interesting. I mean, I think the message there is that if you have a startup in book publishing, you know, you need to be thinking about revenue um, because Readmill's model uh just it just took too long to ramp and not enough users and in a world in which you buy your books through kindle you read your books on a kindle for most people and you've got this like niche area of you know nerdy uh not nerdy but you know niche book readers who uh really want to try things like that using something like readmail and a dozen other competitors uh you know i just don't see it that there's a business there
0: yeah i mean uh it's one I mean I've been following readmill for a long time and uh, they, they've been one of those guys that are you know always good for an interview and always willing to be talking about like the publishing industry and things like that but now that they've been acquired from Dropbox it makes me wonder if uh, Dropbox is going to be working on a cloud reader where if you because I know a lot of people that store their ebooks on Dropbox so they can access them easily on all their devices it, it's way easier to upload say a bunch of PDFs to Dropbox and then you know access it through your web browser on your tablet or your phone. It sure beats hooking it up to your computer and doing manual transfers via USB because who really wants to be doing that anymore? So, do you think that Dropbox will get into you know the ebook game through the Readmill technology?
1: Um, I don't know if that's the case. From what I hear, Readmill is being shut down. So is Dropbox going to create its own reader, document reader? Is it going to use that technology for that? Possibly. But I don't really know that that's been indicated. Um, you know, I wish we could get into the mind of Henrik Berggren, who uh, was the uh, was the Readmill founder and really kind of a visionary and, and really an evangelist for what he was doing um, as to why he did what he did and why he sold out. I mean, it must have been a really good offer, or maybe it is continuing on with some of the, the work that um, the Dropbox or that that the Readmill folks had done. So I don't really know. What do you think? Well,
0: I think it's it's... All the time when companies get acquired, they always kind of shut down their existing services um, as they move. Um, I, I pay attention to a lot of um, uh, startup news that has nothing to do with publishing, whether it's... Um, technology firms or people that wrote, uh, you know, really excellent like little scripts or even like in the robotics industry. You know, Google is really uh, doubling down right now on robotics. You know, they're acquiring AI technology. They're requiring some VR technology. I mean, they're they're doing a lot of things to um, help their self-driving cars and everything like that. And all the time when these companies get uh, bought out, they immediately put an announcement saying, you know, within X days, our uh, existing site will be shut down, and you know, um, thanks for everyone that supported us for over the years. And then eventually, that technology um, gets implemented in some form with the new company. Um, you know, partly I think with with deals like this, it's your. For a Dropbox with a Readmill, um, you're getting a talent, you know, you're getting some really solid guys that have experience building a startup from nothing, getting funding, uh, building up like an audience, and I really do think that Dropbox, the likelihood of them um, developing a cloud reader for books, I think that that's something that they're going to do because um, why else would they buy Readmill? I doubt it's just for the talent alone, and Readmill...
1: Well, that's what everybody said, that it was an aqua hire
0: Yeah. Um, we talked about kids and kids' reviews. Um, Kobo just actually signed a big agreement with Nickelodeon to get 500 mm-hmm. ebooks uh, in its store. So, uh, Dora the Explorer, Spongebob, you know, Ninja Turtles, all that type of stuff, um... So this is this sort of one of those things where it's like kids' books are, are being one of those really popular things that are available right now, but it really doesn't seem like the kids' stuff Uh, It pales in comparison to adult fiction, adult trade, nonfiction, and and things like that. Um, How do you think that Kobo is going to position themselves? Because they only released their kids' store um, tail end of last year, and they haven't really announced any statistics on um, how well it's doing, what's the growth like, and and things like that. Do you think that um, Kobo is trying to make a serious play uh, with the kids' market?
1: Uh, you know, I think that they're all trying to make serious plays with the the, the kids' market. Um, you know, and, and you do mention that, you know, the adult fiction is where it's at and the kids' stuff isn't really, um, you know, you know the, the, the big stuff right now. But book publishing is, is a small potatoes kind of business. You know, if you're a publisher, you've got... 500 titles and you sell a handful of the titles every month and a couple of them do very well and you've got your front list and you expect the front list to do very well um, you know that that's that's what you want to do. You want to be able to get into all those little stores. You want to distribute to all the little stores and, and have people buying a copy here, a copy there, um, because that's the way the business works mostly, um, except for the hits, which is what the big publishers mostly play in, is, is, is to go for a hit. And it's rare that a, a smaller publisher will get one. Um, so I think that kids' eReading reading is going to take off more than it already has. Um, I don't think it's going to be a game-changing business for any of the retailers or, and I don't think eBooks is going to be a game-changing business for any of the publishers. I think that they all have to be there though because that's how their business works. You know, just keep on adding distributors and adding places where people can buy your books.
0: Alright, so before we wrap up the show today, do you have any final thoughts on you know, the last week of stories or anything that kind of got your attention?
1: No, I'm really excited for London. I'm looking forward to it, and I think you know people who want to get the inside scoop on what's happening in London and in book publishing. You know, follow digitalbookworld.com next week.
0: What do you think about? Uh Everybody coming out of the woodwork to sue Apple, uh, diesel ebooks, some Australian companies. Um, it seems like everyone now wants to get a piece of Apple uh, in the New York courts. You know, that is now that there was some sort of precedent being set with, you know, uh, Apple has sort of lost it. and But they're, you know, appealing settlements and things like that. Um, What are your thoughts on sort of everyone coming out of the woodwork now saying, you know, uh, the reason why we went out of business is because of, you know, Apple and agency pricing and things like that. Um, Do you think that this is just a start with like companies like diesel, uh, you know, suing them in court or what are your thoughts?
1: Well, we live in a very litigious society Uh. and uh, you know, if, if, If you can sue, uh, many people will sue, Um, so I'm not that surprised to see it Um, and only time will tell what happens with these lawsuits.
0: All right, so uh, the last bit of news for those of you that uh, have been living under a rock, uh, Microsoft has finally released its Office suite for the iPad and iPhone. So you can get Word, Excel, and all that jazz uh, on the iPad. Um, It's a free download, but they're charging a $99 annual subscription rate to edit documents, create new documents, and so on. it's pissing off a lot of people that, you know, they're, they're doing that subscription kind of charge. But uh, already all of their apps are at the top of uh, the charts right now within just like 24 hours of those apps uh, hitting uh, iOS. So um, it'll be very telling to see um, how well that they'll actually do and, you know, if their resistance to the subscription fee um, is fleeting. So we'll we'll report more on that. And um, you've been listening to the Goody Reader Radio Show with Michael and Jeremy. If you have any thoughts or you know, questions on the show, you could drop a comment uh, on the radio. A link if you're listening to the show on iTunes, TuneIn, or a myriad of other sources. You can visit GoodyReader.com for all the latest news, previews, interviews, and industry-wide coverage. And um, you could pay attention to both DBW and Goody Reader for all of the happenings for the London Book Fair coming up next week. Uh, Everybody, thanks for listening and take care.